This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour on ABC Radio WA. Hello, lovely to be joining you this afternoon, coming to you from the north today, out of Kununurra, where the build-up to the wet season is giving us a balmy 41-degree day here and plenty of humidity to boot. You're going to hear about how the building team is going pouring a concrete slab in these conditions for the only cotton gin in the state. And then we're going to duck across to Victoria to hear from a young Kiwi shearer who's shorn 830 lambs in the last nine hours. And in the process, he raised thousands of dollars for men's mental health. Yeah, growing up, personally, I uh, lost about a mate a year in high school. So, yeah, it was, it was something that was quite close to the heart. Um, obviously, I couldn't really grow the mow, so I couldn't play that part, but I knew I could uh, make an impact in some other way. That story alongside the news, weather, and a look at the wool markets, all before one o'clock today. They've closed up for the week again, so Danny Burkett will run you through those details. And if you'd let, like to get in touch with me this afternoon, my name's Alice Marshall. It's my first country hour today. I'd love it if you sent me a text. 0448922604. My name's Alice Marshall. And first up, a Singapore-based company has made the bid to take over one of Australia's largest cotton gin operators, Namoy Cotton, which is contracted by the Kimberley Cotton Company, to build and operate the new gin here where I'm at, in Kununurra. This week, the Louis Dreyfus Company announced the conditional offer which would see it acquire the remaining 83% of shares in the company that it currently doesn't own. Now, cotton growers are pretty familiar with Louis Dreyfus because the company operates three major cotton gins across New South Wales and Queensland, which already process plenty of Kimberley cotton. Now, Namoy Cotton Executive Chairman Tim Watson says while the deal is yet to be finalised, there are plenty of positives for shareholders and for growers. Namoy Cotton's received a uh, what's called a non-binding indicative offer from Louis Dreyfus. So what that means in simple terms is that uh, Louis Dreyfus has made an offer of a total of 51 cents to buy the uh, remaining shares that they don't already own and they own circa 17% of of Namoy Cotton at, the, at this stage. It's subject to some due diligence. We'll call it an extraordinary general meeting of the shareholders. We expect that will happen sometime around April or May and the shareholders get to vote on on the outcome. We've had in, in indication from our major other shareholders, being Samuel Terry Asset Management, that they would support this offer. Multiply 51 cents by 208 million shares, roughly. I think that works out at 109 million or thereabouts. And in terms of gins still under construction, you know, especially in the, the north, how, how's all that progressing? Our goal was to get the majority of the concrete works done prior to the wet season, and, and that's happened. I know the um, the construction of the building part of it, the, effectively the shed, it's been done by a firm in Brisbane and they're pretty well done and ready to start delivering it on site as soon as the wet season finishes. And so it's, yeah, it's full full steam ahead. This is the gin at Kununurra. Our target's um, 2025. I'm sure a lot of Growers up that way will be keen as soon as it opens uh, instead of uh, travelling all those thousands of kilometres. 
Do you think some people might be upset that a, a foreign-owned company will, will be buying out an Australian company? Be lots of people have different views on that, but I think we're, we're all operating on a, on a global platform these days. And uh, Louis-Dreyfus, uh, you know, they've shown a, a long commitment to Australian agriculture. Whilst they're, they're not an Australian-born and company, they've been operating here for 110 years. So the combined the two is a, with NAMOI, that's 172 years of commitment to Australian agriculture. And so I, I think that's a um, they're, they're, the more I learn about Louis Dreyfus and I've been involved, you know, working with them as joint venture partners for the last, um, well, since I've been on the board, which is about eight years and they've been involved with NAMOI for nearly 10. They, they've got a strong commitment and uh, similar sort of values to, to Namoy, and uh, I think they're, um, there's, there's no, uh, I see only positives with joining the two. That's Namoy Cotton Executive Chairman Tim Watson speaking with Brandon Long. And as you just heard, the Kununurra Cotton Gin is being built as we speak. Without an operational cotton gin, Ord Valley growers have been trucking their cotton almost 4,000 kilometres across the country to be processed in Dolby in southern Queensland. Matt Gray from Sarah's Farms is one of those growers. He's also on the board of the Kimberley Cotton Company, which is overseeing the Kununurra gin build. Matt, whereabouts are we up to when it comes to the Ord Valley cotton gin? Yeah, thanks, Alice. Um, Yeah, it's been really exciting progress so far, so the guys are... um nearly completed the concrete package and all that being ahead of schedule, which in this day and age is yeah, almost hard to imagine. So what does that look like on the ground? Have you gone out and had a bit of a sticky beak? Yeah, I've been um, out there a couple of times. Um, for what started off as a massive hole in the ground um, has now almost been completed and backfilled and they're just working on the shed pad itself. So what a lot of people won't know about a cotton gin is that a lot of it happens underground. So your module feeder, bale press... Uh, basement, um, three metres underground, so that's all got to be dug out, formed up, concreted, and then backfilled, and then yeah, the shed pad goes down after that. So they're just on the guys are just working on the shed pad now. And is it a bit of a mad rush to get as much done as possible now before the heavy rains of the wet season really kick in? Yeah, definitely. The guys have um, they had a pretty good run in October. Uh, the weather up here was quite mild for that time of year, but yeah, they've really struggled through November with some storms and high humidity and heat so for what they've been able to achieve is quite remarkable um, but I think we're always hopeful to have it done before Christmas but um, that's every day by day now that's looking more and more likely so to go into next year with a concrete pad and yeah to start on the shed is, is we couldn't be in a better position really. For someone who might be listening down in the south of the state, can you give them an idea of what the temperature's like outside? I think it was a top of 41 today in Kununurra. What's that humidity doing? Yeah, it's pretty high. Um, I always say if you're not sweating, you're probably dead. Um, 40 might sound pretty normal to people down south, but I think we're nearly six weeks over 40 and anywhere up to 80% humidity. So yeah, it's a good time of year to be on the tractor. So concrete slab nearly finished. What's, what's the next stage from here? Um, so yeah, we're mostly contracted for the construction side of it and the fit out. Um, the shed will be delivered in February um, next year, ready for assembly in March, April, um, and same as most of the other 
equipment that had to be fabricated. The gin, the first 18 containers of gin equipment is ready to be shipped, if not already, from Lummis in the US. So that'll be landing on shore early next year as well. So hopefully all the pieces of puzzle are sitting on the ground, ready to go for the dry season next year, and the guys will get stuck into it. And that's Namoy Cotton that's doing that fit out, isn't it? Yep, Namoy Cotton will do the construction of the of the gin equipment in the shed. Have you heard anything from Namoy Cotton, no changes to that plan, even if there is shareholder changes up above? No, nah, no changes at all. That shouldn't really affect the KCC too much. What's it like for you to go out there and to see that cotton gin actually being built? It's been spoken about for so long. What's it like to see it underway? Um to be the one who planted cotton almost eight years ago, just four hectares when we were looking at the pro- pro- prospect of growing cotton up here to being on the board for the last two years to get the um, final investment decision earlier this year, it, yeah, it's a huge relief. Um, I don't think as a board we've even had time to sit down and celebrate yet, but um, that time will come because yeah, it was um, tiltering on a knife's edge for a long time so to see um, actual groundworks happening is um, yeah it's phenomenal really and a yeah, great feeling. And have we still got a firm end date in sight for it? Uh, we can only go by the stages and yeah we're still aiming for the 2025 ginning season obviously there's a lot of water to go under the bridge between now and then or hopefully no more bridges get washed away but um, that yeah that's still the aim and yeah given that the first part is ahead of schedule um, there's no reason to see why that can't happen. So you're preparing for the 2024 season now or about to look at planting for that season. Where do you think you'll send your cotton from that 2024 season to next year? Uh, We've sort of started to scale up our production um, with some new land we've bought online and just to get ready for the commitments we've made for 2025 to the Kununurra Gin. So we'll, um, with anticipation of being able to send it to Catherine, obviously freight's been the issue, the securing enough freight to move any more cotton than what we currently grow to Dolby. So, um, yeah, we're hoping that Catherine Gin will be up and running and ready to go by August next year for picking. What does that balance sheet look like when you compare trucking fees to Dolby in southern Queensland versus Catherine just over the other side of the NT border? Uh, Interestingly enough, it's um, just about equals itself out with the high demand for cotton seed over east, um, lower ginning prices at the gin compared to Catherine. Um, so it's really like for like um, for the figures that we've done so far, which will surprise you. It's just more of a, um, yeah, m- being able to move larger volumes to the Northern Territory rather than having to go that extra distance to Queensland. And when it comes to planting and getting ready for your cotton planting season, lots of farmers want anything but rain when it comes to their planting seasons you guys up here don't really have that option planting at the end of the wet season. What does that look like in reality? Yeah, that's true, Alice. Uh, February is traditionally the wettest month um, and the window opens yeah, late January with the ultimate window planting time mid-Feb. There's always gaps in the weather, so you've just got to be ready to go and um, and pull the trigger as soon as those paddocks are trafficable. And we've still got a lot of learning to do in that space, but yeah, over time there's going to be paddocks half planted and split plantings and that sort of thing, which will challenge crop management. But um, that's, like I say, we've been doing it for a while now. And, but to do it on a larger scale um, is something we're going to have to juggle. And some years will be good and some years will be bad. Just for an idea of context, can, have you got some rainfall figures from past years when it comes to January, February rainfall? 
Um, none off the top of my head, but yeah, there's not it's not unusual to have six, seven. I think the first year we did that four hectares, we had a meter of rain before I could even get out and see check the crop emergence. So, yeah, it can get really wet. We might pl- some growers might just plant their first plantings beginning of Feb, and then the rest of it might not go into end of March. So, um, but that's something we've known for a long time going into it, and yeah, we're prepared for that. That's Matt Gray. He farms cotton here in the Old Valley and is on the board of the Kimberley Cotton Company. Hi, my name is Tushanti and I'm at Lambu Station and you're listening to the Country Hour. Now, when you think of Port Hedland, your mind might go straight to iron ore or it could go to wind. Combine the two and you end up with some pretty large volumes of mineral dust. But there's a new solution to this problem recently arrived to town, an Australian-first wind fence. The concept is for mesh panels attached to about two kilometres of fencing to help stop, stop wind blowing the dust off the stacks and blanketing the West End. Cindy Dunham is BHP's General Manager of Port Operations. She says the fences should be completed in just a couple of months. The wind fences were designed overseas. It's the first time they've ever been built in Australia, so they are pretty unique and and pretty exciting, and you can practically see them from everywhere in town. Uh, But the wind fences are still designed and fabricated in WA, so they've, like been wholly built here in WA and transported up to site, constructed um, over time. It's taken us nearly two years to construct these wind fences, but exciting technology and we're kind of learning and innovating with it as we go. Um, The wind fences in total are two kilometres long. They're 30 metres high. They're massive infrastructure and and we're having to learn how to look after them once we get them and we get them handed over from projects. But, But yeah, largely they're just large shade sails all piled together and designed to really stop the wind flow from um, the offtake from the stockpiles. So, yeah, super exciting technologies. Can't wait to see them working over Christmas. That's BHP's General Manager of Port Operations, Cindy Dunham, speaking with Michelle Stanley. And you might be aware of a big global climate summit kicked off yesterday in Dubai. It's called COP28. Food production security will be one of the hot topics but it does mean that farmers but does it mean sorry that farmers should be nervous about some new climate related regulations being introduced mark howden has been on the world's peak climate science body for the last 32 years it's called the intergovernmental panel on climate change and professor howden thinks australian producers shouldn't be overly concerned about the outcomes of cop28 well, there is a, a, an anticipated leader's dec- declaration on food systems, agriculture and climate, and that's effectively asking countries to align their national food systems and, and agriculture strategies if they have them. So, for example, Australia doesn't have a food policy with their nationally determined contributions. So that's the commitments they're making to um, other countries in the in the COPs. There, there is going to be increased uh, focus on food security. So in this COP, there also is going to be a focus on adaptation. So uh, working through the global goal of adaptation, and and that's that's an important part of the agriculture and food picture. Is that how can we adapt? what are actually quite vulnerable systems to climate change to those climate changes so we reduce risk and improve productivity and sustainability. In terms of any potential policy or regulation outcomes, do you think food and fibre producers in Australia should be concerned? I think there's more opportunity than risk in this space. I think the opportunity, though, will mostly arise for, for those parties who are prepared 
And to be prepared, you have to start to put in place uh, mechanisms which both reduce greenhouse gas emissions in cost-effective ways and also much more effectively respond to the changes that we're seeing in climate. And at the moment in Australia, we've largely dropped ball on that in an institutional sense. So at government level and at our research and development corporation level, we were global leaders going back a dozen years or more. Uh, we need to regain that momentum and bring uh, researchers, policymakers and the farming system stakeholders together to start to create new innovations which generate those opportunities. I don't see a lot of regulation uh, likely on in our Australian farming systems that's, that's going to impose uh, additional components of responsibility on our farmers. However, um, regulation may occur or legislation may occur in other markets uh, which will impact on our farmers. So, for example, carbon border adjustment mechanisms uh, may start to play a role in terms of uh, food and agricultural trade. That's Professor Mark Howden, the head of the Australian National University's Institute for Climate, Energy and Disaster Solutions, speaking to Fiona Broom about COP28. And you can read more on that huge global climate summit online. Just search ABC News and COP28. Now, as the nation's grain harvest continues, for many, it's a well-worn path. The header driver, the chaser bin driver, the lackey moving field bins and, of course, the cook. For West Australian farmer Victoria Brown, this is her 40th year in charge of the oven and she has a few seasonal thoughts put down in verse. The dream. The earth mother amidst the ripening corn, trailing her fingertips across the wheat heads as she blissfully wafts through the fruits of the year's agricultural toils, sun-kissed, smiling and relaxed, as the sun slips over the horizon heralding the end of another glorious day on the farm. The reality. The fraught farmer's wife amidst a sea of Tupperware dishes, frantically filling them, sweat-drenched, under pressure and stressed out, as she thrusts everything into bags and disappears into the night to deliver them, hopefully hot, to the hungry harvest team. Everyone out in the paddock is talking about the glorious sunset, but she certainly didn't have time to witness it. Everyone does harvest meals slightly differently. This is my 40th year of being chief cook and bottle washer. I think of ways to make this position sound more attractive. I come up with nothing. Farmer advocates the personal touch, so his good woman, well, mostly good woman, delivers to the team out in the paddock. It's a good opportunity to do a quick check on everyone to see how they're going, ask if they're tired, or see if they need a load of washing done. I rather uncharitably hope they say no. As harvest rolls on, the enthusiasm for harvest cooking wanes somewhat. I am sick of hunting down Tupperware dishes and knives and forks. I spend half the day driving around the farm checking utes, cabs, quarters and the workshop. Yes, I know what you're thinking, but I just can't do disposable containers. More fool me. I have toyed with the idea of giving everyone a harvest pack when they arrive. You know, like when you join the army. One knife, one fork, one spoon, one bowl, all named, and the instruction, look after these. If you lose them, it's laps and fingers. Farmer says that is harsh. 
I have toyed with the idea of outsourcing the food, giving everyone a pie warmer, and sitting in the farmhouse at the end of the day, having witnessed the glorious sunset, watching Netflix and quaffing wine. A farmer has firmly told me in no uncertain terms that this will not cut the mustard. So, to quote one of my favourite Shakespearean phrases, Once more unto the breach, dear friends, once more. I shall sally forth, armed with sustenance and a spring in my step, to spend forty minutes careering around the farm trying to find everyone, successfully negotiating the dips and ruts in the stubble so the food doesn't end up on the floor. I shall lift my game and think of ways to make cooking for the team easier for myself. I have a light bulb moment. I shall support local business and transfer delicious other people's cooking meals into my Tupperware bowls so no one knows the repast presented at the end of the day has not been prepared by my own fair hands. No one but farmer. He to whom I have cooked for and been married to for over 40 years, will definitely smell a rat. Vic, that was absolutely lovely. This poem, tell us, tell us what in, well, story, I suppose it is. Tell us what inspired it. So um, inspiration comes really from the fact that I write a, um, a fortnightly column for a local newspaper and so I'm always looking for the topic of the day and I thought, what am I going to write about this week? And I just had a week, because we've had a harvest where we haven't had a lot of rain and much respite, just had a week of endlessly cooking and you spend a whole half a day cooking a meal, two meals and it's all gone in 15 minutes and you're back in the kitchen starting again. And I, I've always looked at things that sort of stress me out a bit to try and look at the funny side of everything because there's always a funny side to most things. There is always a funny side and there is a romanticised side as well as you started out by explaining that, that sunset. Yeah, well, exactly. And you think that everybody's coping marvellously well and loving harvest meals and you know, there's Facebook pages where people photograph their amazing meals that they're sending out to the team. And, you know, you look at your sort of offering and you think, geez, that's a little bit below the bar. But, of course, everybody isn't um, having a marvellous time. Mm. it's, It's a hectic time of the year isn't it for everybody it is it is it's stressful i love the idea of a of a harvest pack you know a bit like joining yeah, the, the like, army conscripted like, yeah absolutely do you have any i mean do you have any tips for maybe somebody's embarking on their first or their second or their fifth harvest yeah. as as chief cook and bottle washer as you call it well i suppose it depends how manic you are i have got an obsession about sets of things um a little bit ocd maybe i don't know so uh, i am i covet my knives, forks, spoons and dishes. So if you're a little bit like that, I haven't done it, but I'm going to go and buy a bottle of nail varnish and I'm going to put dots on all my forks So because they end up in the quarters. I did rustle through one of our workmen's kitchen drawers the other day and I found two <laughs> of my forks in there, which I took back. So no, keep your sense of humour and... Um, 
Yeah, it's very, very important, that meal at the end of the day. We do deliver into the paddock. I know a lot of people um, stop, but farm is a bit old school and the machines have got to keep running while the weather's there. So I think it is important. Like I said, you have a chance to say, hey, mate, how's your day been? You tired? Can I do a load of washing? Um, Mostly they say no, and I'm actually quite happy to do their washing, (laughs) but, you know, poetic license and stuff when you're writing or something. (laughs) That's farmer Victoria Brown from Beaumont speaking with Tara DeLangraft. I think we all know the pain of harvest and getting harvest meals out when they're needed. Not a minute too soon or late. The time is coming up to 12.30 and you're listening to me, Alice Marshall, on the WA Country Hour. It's time now for news headlines. Jonathan Beale is going to deliver them. Thanks, Alice. In the headlines, WA's Minister for Housing and Planning says changes to planning laws introduced into Parliament are intended to create consistency and transparency in the system. The legislation gives greater powers to development assessment panels. John Kerry says the panels will employ dedicated full-time staff to administer development and planning matters in an effort to boost housing supply. Members of WA's medical profession are calling for government action to reduce the impacts of climate change-related health issues. Nearly 60 members of the group WA Doctors for Environment gathered on the steps of Parliament today in support of their push. They're demanding the introduction of a 2030 target in new climate legislation which passed through Parliament this week and for the implementation of climate health inquiry findings. And a third High Court challenge has been filed over the legality of new laws passed in response to last month's High Court ruling that found indefinite immigration detention was unconstitutional. The government rushed through laws imposing strict visa conditions and ankle bracelets to monitor the 140 detainees who were subsequently released into the community. The Asylum Seeker Resource Centre says the laws represent a drastic overreach of the government's powers. More news, Alice at one o'clock. Thank you for that, Jonathan. Taking a look now at the weather, and we're joined by Bureau of Meteorology Senior Forecaster Angeline Prasad. Good afternoon, Angeline. Can we start off with the Southwest Land Division, please? Um, so we've had the West Coast draft firming up up again, so it's brought in the heat back into uh, into much of uh, the southwest of WA today. So we're temperatures, uh, we're seeing daytime temperatures reach uh, the low to high 30s. Uh, through the northern and central parts of the Southwest Land Division. So getting quite quite warm to hot today. It's going to be brief, though. The only area that's not uh, seeing those high temperatures are the south coast. The so temperatures are a bit more milder there, and generally in the low to high to 20s through there uh, during the daytime today. We are expecting a, a cooler uh, sea breeze along the west coast this afternoon that will push the west coast trough inland today. So... Over the weekend, uh, much cooler temperatures along the west coast of the southwest land division tomorrow, but there is still going to be a fair amount of heat uh, across the central and eastern parts of the southwest land division. So a couple of things uh, with that uh, increased heat uh, through those areas tomorrow, temperatures are going to be about 2 to 6 degrees above average over the northern parts of the southwest land division, but across the southern parts of the southwest land division, basically east of Katanning, uh, the temperatures could be 6 to 12 degrees above average, so uh, rather hot for this time of the year. So it is going to drive up 
fire dangers through those areas. We are going to see fire weather warnings being issued for multiple districts through those areas tomorrow. There will be a little bit of wind as that West Coast trough uh, starts to move inland across the Southwest Land Division. It's going to be a slow progress tomorrow, but suddenly on Sunday, that West Coast trough will move into the Goldfields uh, region. So we'll see much cooler and milder conditions and uh, and uh, reduced uh, fire dangers from Sunday onwards. Uh, with that West Coast trough sticking around today and tomorrow, there is a risk we may see very isolated thunderstorms, high-based thunderstorms across the far eastern parts of the Southwest Land Division, essentially the area around Southern Cross and, and further east, including the adjacent parts of the Goldfields today and into tomorrow, may extend all the way down to the Aspen's coast. So there is that um, less than 10% chance of uh, a risk of dry lightning uh, through the far eastern parts of the Southwest Land Division Today, that risk does reduce tomorrow. It's mostly going to be in the Goldfields and Aspirants region tomorrow. Um, so, um, yes, so, uh, that may lead to elevated bushfire risk over the next uh, 24 hours, 12 to 24 hours. But once we see those milder temperatures in the southwest um, from Sunday onwards, that risk does reduce greatly, um, and uh, and it should uh, uh, much we, we should see much reduced chances of uh, of uh, uh, bushfire risk from Sunday onwards. Talking about lightning, are we? Is there any risk of seeing lightning and hail like some place some places had last week? No, no. So um, we are the only places that we are going to see uh, thunderstorms uh, today will be over the northern parts of the Kimberley, and they're not likely to carry hail, suddenly lightning in those areas with those thunderstorms. Um, the only thing we're going to see um, from the dry thunderstorms through that those inland southern parts of WA tonight, today, this afternoon, tonight, into tomorrow, will be that risk of dry lightning. There's going to be these these thunderstorms are very dry. They tend to have very little or no rainfall. So no, very little or no rainfall. Um, suddenly, definitely not hail. Um, just that risk we may see lightning strikes reaching the ground. And can we head north now into the northern and eastern forecast districts, my neck of the woods? I'd very much like to see some weekend storms with a bit of rain in them. <laughs> Is there any rain on the cards? Um, Yes and no. Uh, so it is very hot and dry across much of northern and eastern parts of the state currently. In fact, we have got a heat wave developing across the Kimberley. So this afternoon we will see a heat wave warning, severe heat wave warning uh, being issued for parts of the Kimberley, essentially through the inland areas. The only areas that we're likely to see thunderstorms today will be over the northern parts of the Kimberley. Later in the weekend and going into next week, we do see those thunderstorms spread into the eastern parts, into the into parts of the Pilbara and into the interior. May happen gradually over the weekend, but the main uh, really weather over the over the next couple of days is those very hot temperatures. Temperatures during the daytime reaching the low 40s, but also the overnight minimums will be unusually high for this t- time of the year. So those two. Uh, factors will drive up uh, those heat wave conditions across the north. So stay hydrated, stay cool, stay in the shade as much as you can. And uh, uh, once the thunderstorms start,
start going or start happening a bit more regularly next week, we will see a reduction in those heat wave conditions. But unfortunately, over the next few days, uh, those heat wave conditions will spread into the goldfields area and also the interior. Um, these areas are fairly sparsely pop pop uh, populated, uh, but having said that, um, it's going to be very hot through these areas over the next uh, few days. Sounds like a very pleasant hot weekend ahead. Are there any other warnings that we need to know about? So today we have just got a fire weather warning for the Barab district. However, tomorrow with those hot conditions through inland parts of the southwest land division ahead of the the west coast trough moving inland, we will see multiple districts uh, that will have uh, fire weather warnings out. Uh, so much of the inland parts of the southwest land division will see a fire weather warning come out tomorrow. Um, also, uh, look out, watch out for heat wave warnings that we will start will be issuing from this afternoon onwards. Thank you so much, Angeline Prasad. And I don't think that there's been much rain in the last 24 hours. Richard Hudson's been keeping an eye on it, though. Is that right, Richard? There's been absolutely nothing at all, zero. So in the last 24 hours, it's pretty rare to not have any rain up in your neck of the woods, isn't it? But, yeah, nowhere's recorded even a single millimetre. There are still a few fires burning around WA, though, but luckily... The ones that are of notice are at an advice level. So there's one in the city of Wanneroo, one in the shires of Condinan and Yilgarn, and another one at Ravensthorpe, one at Ashburton, and Menzies in the Shire of Menzies, and also in the Shire of Esperance. And the Shire of Caratha also has a total fire ban in place today, so that's due to the risk of a fire, and that means, as you know, you can't do anything that could potentially start a fire. So literally no lighting of fires for cooking, camping or outdoor entertainment. Uh, no hot work such as metalwork, grinding, welding, etc. No off-road activity using four-wheel drives, quad bikes, motorbikes, etc. If you want a list of the activities you can and can't do in a total fire ban, just do a simple search and that's for DFES, total fire ban. So D-F-E-S and then total fire bans. And if you want an update on any of the fires and what state they're at and where they are, just do a search for emergency and WA. They're the two main words, and you'll get straight to it. That's it. Thanks for that update. Richard Hudson will be checking in on the wool market a bit later, but first we're heading to a miner's memorial. G'day, I'm Christian Blocker from Bothcam Australia Farm, rockmelon, honeydew and pumpkin grower from the Ord and you're listening to The Country Hour. Now, the 24th annual St Barbara's Festival is now underway in Kalgoorlie Boulder. It's basically a chance to celebrate the resources sector. The annual Miners Memorial Service was held last night. A hammer and a miner's helmet were blessed as part of that service, which was attended by hundreds of people at the WA Museum of the Goldfields. Daniel Goss chairs the Mine Rescue Committee's Committee for WA's Chamber of Minerals and Energy. He's given the honour of lighting a flame of remembrance for more than 1,400 miners who have died working in WA's goldfields since the 1890s gold rush. It's um, an unfortunate part of that Mines Rescue role that not every operation is a rescue. They are recoveries and despite something terrible happening it's a really important role that needs to be done with care and it's a role that does need to happen we've just seen the 
the service for the annual miners memorial and I reckon there was at least 250 people here in the crowd and amongst that crowd we did see a few families that have lost people their names are on that memorial wall so what what's going through your head when you see those families going over and laying a wreath and and I, I mean I saw a few children put their hand against their father's names for example it's pretty moving stuff it's in some ways we're separated from that on the mine when we do the rescue it's a workmate it's a colleague but when you come here and you see the families against that memorial wall it really lets you know that there's so much more behind that person and there's a whole life that is no longer there and there's a hole that is never going to be never going to be patched and how long have you been involved with mines rescue yourself personally uh, just over 16 years. Right, and I imagine you've seen, had to respond to quite a few incidents in, in those uh, I have years. both worked and been involved in the recoveries of names on that wall. Wow. More than one name on that wall. So um, so this has real personal significance for you to be here on a night and, and get that honour of lighting the St Barbara Lantern. It uh, means a lot and I appreciate the opportunity that was provided by the St Barbs Festival and the, uh, and the CME. This annual service, I mean, uh, how important do you think it is probably not just for the industry to, to acknowledge that it needs to put safety at the forefront, but I guess this is a, a, a night every year where families can come and a way for them to, to grieve and, and, and move on, I guess. Move on, it's for us to reflect that despite the mining industry and all that it provides, the most important thing that should come out of a mine is a miner. And when they're making decisions and we're running our operations, that we keep that at the forefront. That's Daniel Goss. He's the chair of the WA Chamber of Minerals and Energy's Mine Rescue Committee. He was speaking to Jared Lucas at last night's Miners Memorial Service in Kalgoorlie, Boulder. Unfortunately this year, there have been some fatalities in WA's resources industry. In February, 51-year-old Jody Byrne was killed after being struck by a locomotive at BHP's rail yards near Port Hedland. In April, a man in his 30s died underground at the Sunrise Dam gold mine near Laverton in the northern goldfields after suffering a medical event. And in June, 20-year-old contractor Kieran McDowell was killed at the Onslow Iron Project. You're listening to the WA Country Hour. Now, a young Victorian shearer has just raised thousands of dollars for men's mental health charity Movember in a tribute to mates lost to suicide. 23-year-old Luke Hillis shore 830 lambs in nine hours on Saturday, smashing his own personal best and even giving the world record a nudge. He was back on the handpiece this week at a shearing shed near Cobden, about 200 kilometres southwest of Melbourne. I grew up in New Zealand down in a place around a region called Southland and Southland had one of the highest male teen suicide rates in New Zealand and in the world. So yeah, growing up personally, I uh, lost about a mate a year in high school. So yeah, it was, it was something that was quite close to the heart. Um, obviously I couldn't really grow the mow, so I couldn't play that part, but I knew I could uh, make an impact in some other way. Okay, so can't really grow a low, but you can cheer a hell of a lot of sheep. Yeah, yeah, well, I surprised myself too, so yeah. Right, so for you, really a very, very personal uh, motivator. Yeah, yeah, it's, um, when I kind of come to it at the end of the day, I was 
it was the last 30 minutes and I was digging pretty deep but I realised that my struggle was only temporary and um, people that you know suffer with depression and um, other mental illnesses you know they, they suffer a lot more than I have so you know I had to do something to raise a little bit of awareness and yeah make it a bit more personal. Now talk me through the day I think 830 lambs in nine hours? Yeah, 830 lambs in nine hours, so every 39 seconds is what I average, a sheep to Sean. Had you ever shorn anything like those sorts of numbers before? Nah, it was a bit of a shock to everyone and a bit of a shock to the system, really. How'd you do it? Well, yeah, I, I, I would, the original goal was to share my 600, and we got, got a trainer over in the UK, Matt Luxton, he's trained many record holders and got connected with him when I was over there travelling in the UK um, and kind of told him a bit of the plan and yeah, we, we just started working out and yeah, it was about four months preparation, about six weeks before it was uh, pretty heavy conditioning and yeah, so a lot of gym and then I had a really great crew around me that just um, helped me in all areas and you know. Um, really really backed me up on the day so yeah they backed me up and I just kind of just had the handpiece and the sheet you were very modest (laughs) well yeah at the end of the day it was yeah had a great timekeeper had a really supportive uh, sisters that flew over from New Zealand and yeah had an awesome partner but yeah more or less had a really good uh, crew uh, with my gear my gear preparation so that was that was really good and yeah had some really good workers with me um, in the pen setting up my sheep for me keeping them warm and yeah keeping them out of the rain that weekend what were your previous best tallies previous best tally the best tally i've done in a run was 134 and 480 so this is miles above that yeah yeah the way the kind of plan was was to share one in every 47 seconds and yeah i just kind of got a bit excited that first run and yeah took off and then had 179 for that first run and then uh, it wasn't until they said, hey, you're on for an 800, that's when the, we had to call the farmer to get some more sheep in because we were about to run out by third run. Now, back on your tally, I know you weren't out to set records, you were fundraising for November, but you actually weren't that far off the, the, the nine-hour lamb shearing world record. Yeah, so I only really um, looked at the numbers last night and I think the highest record was 8.57 or 8.67 on the nine hours. So... Um, yeah, it was interesting to see that yeah, the number was there and it kind of opened up um, a couple of doors for me and yeah, it's it's obviously the next month I'm going to regroup with myself and then um, you know potentially um, you know start looking into other other group records and records that I can do with people or you know other numbers that I can achieve but yeah at the moment it's um, yeah just a number in my head. And shearers typically, like a lot of athletes I suppose, take a few years to be uh pumping out their best tallies and you're you're relatively uh, uh, new in the industry yes I've been sharing uh, started 2019 was as um, when I started sharing full-time so yeah I've been pretty lucky sharing down around these um, woods of Hamilton and yeah they're good sharing sheep down here so they've been great to share and I think I've been pretty lucky Um, I I learned in New Zealand and yeah learned from a few Kiwis over here and you know, learnt the, the easy Kiwi style and, you know, I felt like I put a lot of time into it and I tried to always surround myself with really good shares and so I think it's a bit of a byproduct of all the people I've surrounded myself with but, yeah, it's, um, it's a surprise to a few people and it's probably a bit of a shock to the system. That's young shearer Luke Hillis speaking with Angus Burley. Luke is based at Hamilton in Victoria's southwest. Now, merino wool and art aren't usually two words that go together. 
but artist Carmen Tyra has just won nearly $8,000 in a local art competition by combining those two. The Chilean-born artist took out the first prize at the Ellenbrook Art Awards with her felted merino wool design called Miramio. Kate Forrester visited Carmen at her studio just south of Perth to check out how her designs are not just influenced by her background, but by what's on offer here in WA. The quality that we have in Australia is just the best in the world. When I touched it for the first time, I got hooked. I couldn't believe that wool could be so fine and so soft. And um, that's how I got hooked. It was a love affair at first sight. (laughs) Carmen Tyra has just taken out first place in the Ellenbrook Art Award, winning herself around $7,500 for her textile design that she entered into the art competition. But she isn't gushing about the prize money. What she's most excited about is something else, merino wool. I get this wool from Casalana, which is um, a wool farm located in Serpentine in WA. It's about about an hour from south from Perth. It's um, a farm that have, um, has about 80 animals that... Um, reared in the paddocks, beautiful different paddocks, nice and green, and uh, they are nice and free to wander around. Carmen's art creation had her doing things like knitting, weaving, spinning and felting with merino. She says knowing where it comes from is what makes it that much more special to work with. It's merino wool that is from Western Australia, which is in itself a warranty. You just put it in between your fingers and you pull it and all that. And then you know that the wool is going to withstand the pulling and it's a nice and healthy fibre. Um, also, you know that the weather and the the um, nutrition the sheep get in Western Australia is based on knowledge, on scientific knowledge. And um, it's not just... Uh, it doesn't just... Uh, grow or raise the sheep in paddocks that would let them to themselves do what they want. They've been watched, they've been fed properly, they've taken care of. So that in itself is a big warranty that you know that what you're using is top class. At home in her studio, I'm surrounded by all sorts of pieces of art. But what sticks out the most is the connection between Carmen's life growing up in Chile and what her life is like now in Waruna, a small town around 100 kilometres south of Perth. Well, I was a city girl and um, I never went to a farm. I had really no exposure to the um, country life whatsoever. And uh, in that sense, um, I think I was really devoid of a lot of input into that that I actually got here in WA. Who are we listening to? Jaivas, uh, Los Jaivas. It's a group uh, that um, started when I was living in Chile. And the young people that are at this stage are all oldies, grey hair like me. Yeah, so, and they became very popular all over the world. Yeah. Why do you like listening to this while you work in your studio? Uh, it's, I think it's a source of inspiration, it's something that touches my soul. And um, 
its inspiration, its company, its、um, I don't know, it just brings you some breaks the solitude of creating. Yeah. So while you're listening to Chile music and you're working with Australian products like merino wool, it's all kind of coming together. Exactly. Yeah, it's a round trip. Yeah, basically. Yeah, Around the world trip. Yeah, my beginnings and、uh, you know my reality. Yeah. What do you mean by my reality? Well, my reality is the fact that I'm a migrant. I lived half of my life in Chile and half of my life here. Even though I've been here probably longer than in Chile, and、uh, it's a person that、uh, that was formed with two cultures, with two backgrounds, with、um, a country that I left, that I had to leave, that I loved, and a country that I learned to love, like Australia. I think going forward, it's going to be pretty difficult for Carmen to leave merino wool out of anything else she decides to create. Look at that. So how can you not get hooked with something like this? I can do marvels with all these materials that are on my hands, and all produced in Western Australia. So it's amazing. That's Waruna artist Carmen Tyra chatting to Kate Forrester. And if you want to visit Carmen's studio, you can head on Facebook and just search Merino Dreaming. Now we're taking a look at some cattle that are pretty far from where I'm at. This week there was a two-day cattle sale at the Mount Barker sale yards. It's all the way down in the far Great Southern, which might as well be a world away from me sitting up here in the Kimberley. Weena calves sold yesterday, and trade cattle were on offer today. Tracy Kilner's been keeping an eye on both the day's proceedings. Hi, Tracy. Can you run me through the details, please? A total of 1,233 weaner calves were presented for our first weaner sale of the season. All calves were curfewed and the quality was high. Every weight category gained with demand from feeder buyers, restockers, and live export was selective on weaned calves only. Lightweight Angus steers topped at 316 cents, while the heavyweight quality future breeder heifers sold to 214 cents a kilo. Weaner steers weighing over 380 kilos returned 212 to 270, while the steers weighing between 330 and 380 kilos sold from 200 to 278 cents. Lighter steers weighing 280 to 330 kilos made 244 to 272 cents, and weights under 280 kilos returned 192 to 316 cents. The weaner heifers weighing over 380 kilos sold for 196. Weights from 330 to 380 made from 158. To 196 and up to 214 cents to breeder buyers. Lighter weights between 280 and 330 kilos made from 124 to 246 cents, and weights under 280 kilos returned 120 to 200 cents a kilo. Bulls weighing under 450 kilos sold from 160 to 200 cents. Today's trade sale. Heavy cows dominated the yarding, selling to 130 cents, while the store cows gained with feeder interest, selling to 122 cents a kilo. The heavy bulls topped at 130 as well. Bullocks weighing over 600 kilos made from 160 to 188 cents. 500 to 600 kilo weight steers made 190 to 210 cents. Grand steers weighing 400 to 500 kilos sold for. 190 cents up to 216 cents to feeder buyers. Grown heifers weighing under 540 kilos made from 160 to 190, and the heavier weights sold from 140 to 168 cents a kilo. 
heavy cows made from 110 to 130, medium weights from 114 to 128, and the store cows gained 30 cents, returning 92 to 122 cents. Heavy bulls sold from 100 to 130. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thanks, Tracy. So just recapping yesterday, 1,233 wiener calves sold and today 416 trade cattle sold. I've got a text here from Rob who says, regardless what the researcher from the IPCC says, there's plenty for food and fibre farmers to be worried about. Even a small amount of new regulation is too much when it comes when the whole global warming cult is built on a lie. It's a continuing shame. The ABC doesn't give both sides of the argument. Thank you for your message, Rob. We're going to head to the wool market now, which is down this week. The eastern market fell four cents to close at 1,166, and the western market indicator fell 27 cents to close at 12.19 cents. Danny Burkett, can you tell me what what happened in Fremantle this week? Yeah, if we walk through the two days in Fremantle, just an interesting point before I start. If we look at the EMI, the Eastern Market Indicator in US terms, that was actually quoted dearer for the week. So the purchasing power of the Chinese continued. So if you look through their eyes, they had three weeks of rising markets, but unfortunately with the exchange rate lifting up just under a cent, that dampened the market in, in Australian terms. In Fremantle, 18 micron fell the brunt of 30 cents to close at 15.55. 19 microns were off 40 to close at 14.20. 20 microns fell 40. They were 13.35 on the close. 21s off 30. 13.20 when we closed on Wednesday. 22s at 12.75. They were off 25 for the week. Pieces and bellies, regardless of micron, regardless of VM, regardless of yield, all fell five cents across the board. And the locks this week, after two weeks of stabilising, unfortunately, the locks have fallen another 25 cents, and that is from a very low base to start with. Crutchings also fell 10 cents, and both of those falls were felt on the second day. Lambs remain firm, albeit the shorter lambs are firm at a very low rate. So 40 mil lambs are trading quite well. 50 mil lambs, when we get into the combing market, are trading quite well. But once we hit the 30 mil lambs and shorter, they are in a very tight spot at the moment. So overall, a reasonable result, just given the exchange rate didn't help the wool market. And Danny, who are the buyers at the moment? So we've got no surprises to who we had buying in the wool market this week. If we look at this, is from Merino Combing Wool. Tech Wool Trading taking just shy of 17% of that market. PJ Morris, the West Australian-based business, 16%. TNU, who have been in the top four to five buyers for the last two years, took just shy of 14%. Endeavour Wool Exports, 8.5%. Interesting point, as I always make, the crossbred market, Tech Wool Trading, the largest buyer. Merino Skirtings, Tech Wool Trading, the largest largest buyer and if we look at the oddment market tech will trading the second largest buyer so across the board if we look we've offered roughly 60,000 bales more wool this time that versus last year and this week was 57 million dollars worth of trade and that took us to 971 million dollars a year to date so just shy of that billion dollar mark and just quickly what's on the cards for next week danny 
We have 48,000 bars between Sydney, Melbourne and Fremantle. There is a three-day sale in Melbourne. I would suggest that we'll test the market again. If we look this week, we're just going to offer 50,000. There were roughly 4,000 bars withdrawn prior to sale. But that, that 46, 47,000 bar mark certainly certainly hurt the market just with the variety of offering that we have in the marketplace. I would suggest as we walk into this week, we'll find very similar with a lower offering in Fremantle, though, I think that could help our market in particular as these buyers are operating under indent orders. So if that's still the case, then the lower offering will certainly help us. Thanks so much, Danny. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.